Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Kat Arney. What's 100 times stronger than steel, transparent, and a football field-sized sheet of it would weigh less than a gram? Stay tuned to discover the identity of this marvellous material that's apparently destined to change the world we live in. Plus, we go behind the headlines from the world of science and technology to hear how scientists have discovered a trigger for organ regeneration, how the first complex life on Earth reproduced itself, and why do cats have pupils shaped like a vertical slit? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First this week, researchers are saying they're on the brink of being able to kickstart the regrowth of hair follicles and even other bodily organs. Scientists have discovered a trigger in the form of short pieces of genetic material called double-stranded RNA, which switches on an immune pathway, inducing stem cells to rebuild organs just like they would do in a developing baby. Done in the skin, it could help victims of severe burns. Luis Garza made the discovery at Johns Hopkins University in the US. When I was a resident uh, studying medicine, all of my teachers taught me that it was impossible to grow a new hair follicle if you destroy the entire thing in an adult. Um, and yet uh, other people before us and we in this paper show that you indeed can do that. And so it does create hope that um, in the same way that I was taught that you can't grow a new hair follicle, now people are taught we can't grow a new limb, but maybe that might become a possibility. How did you do this then to regrow hair follicles. What was the actual experimental model that you set up? We had two sets of mice. We do these uh, very large wounds down to the depth of muscle. So we remove all of the skin. One set of mice have very poor ability to regenerate, which is kind of currently the way we think a lot of humans are. And then the second strain of mice was a very good regenerator. So we would do the exact type of wound. And instead of having a pure scar, they would have a lot of hair follicle regeneration. So we did these gene arrays where we query what's the difference between the ones that do regenerate very well and the ones that don't. And was there a unique gene signature that appeared to be responsible for the difference in the healing? Yeah, yeah. When we did statistics, we found a very significant signature to show that this pathway, which is part of our innate immune pathway that I can explain, there are these receptors that were originally evolved to sense uh, invading organisms that might uh, try to cause an infection. And we found one of the elements of this ancient immune system in our mice that regenerate very well. What is turning on that ancient arm of the immune system then in these regenerating mice? Is that the damage that then triggers that immune response that then in turn makes the skin grow better and makes new hair follicles come along? Yeah, just as you said, it is damage. Because it's a really fun intellectual question to say, 
how does your body know it when it's been hurt? It turns out this ancient immune system also senses damage, and that we found a strong signature for that. Now, the killer question then, if you take that pathway and you induce that effect in the mice that don't normally regenerate very well, in other words, you superload them with more of that immune response that the good regenerators have, can you turn the bad regenerators into good regenerators? Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. We were able to do that. Yes, yeah, so we could significantly increase the amount of regeneration in our bad regenerating mice by giving them these compounds that activate their innate immune system. What are those compounds? The compound is double-stranded RNA. Scientists used to believe that double-stranded RNA was only present in viruses, for example, like the measles virus, and that this innate immune pathway is the receptor to tell your body, hey, a virus is attacking. But now we know that it's very likely that double-stranded RNA is also formed during damage, and that the double-stranded RNA then is activating its receptor and that that's what's turning on regeneration and turning on stem cells. Given you've made this discovery then, and you can supply these chemicals, including this double-stranded RNA signal that is the stimulus for this, do you think then we're on the path now to being able to provision a human with these signals to make good damage? And could you, for instance, make a bald person hairy again? Yeah, yeah, you know, we're really excited about this. And the very interesting part of this story is that we think that it's like a lot of discoveries, it's already being used in ways we didn't predict. For example, men and women who want to look uh, younger and go for rejuvenation and visit their local cosmetic dermatologist and receive laser treatment or receive derm abrasion or receive microneedles for rejuvenation of their facial skin, it's very likely that the one thing that unifies all these very different methods of rejuvenation is damage. And that it's by activating the same toll-3 double-strand RNA pathway that um, people are receiving benefits when they go to their cosmetic dermatologist even now. So the, the exciting question that our work raises is whether we can reduce the damage we have to do uh, by instead just directly giving these agents like double-stranded RNA uh, and save uh, people the suffering of having to go through these treatments. The other main application of this could be in scar victims. Uh, so people who've had like burns, for example, where we think by creating new hair follicles, we'll be able to restore the skin to the way it normally is, which is dense with hair follicles, even where we can't see them, for example, on the face. That was Luis Garza, and he's just published that work in the journal Stem Cell. Huntington's disease is a rare but devastating genetic illness. It affects up to 10 in every 100,000 people. Sufferers of the condition carry a faulty version of a gene containing a region with three letters of DNA repeated again and again and again. If you have fewer than 35 of these repeats, then you're usually fine. But 36 or more of them, and you're destined to develop Huntington's. But although researchers know that the number of repeats is broadly linked to how early someone will develop Huntington's, the more you have, the earlier you'll get it, more or less, it's still highly variable, so there must be other factors involved. Well now, thanks to the largest ever study of the genetics of Huntington's disease, Leslie Jones from Cardiff University and her colleagues have tracked down a number of genetic variations that affect the age at which people develop the condition, and this could open up exciting new avenues for future therapies. So there's been a huge amount of work in the biology of Huntington's disease, and essentially pretty well every biological pathway that you might be interested in appears to be altered in cells that carry the mutation that causes the disease. So it's been really hard to pick out 
which pathways you should address in order to provide a treatment for the disease. And what do you find? Who are your prime suspects? So our prime suspects are um, a set of proteins that appear to be contributing to things like DNA repair. So they're proteins that actually operate on the DNA itself. What sort of level of change are we talking about? What sort of influence do these variations have on when someone is likely to get the disease? So we found a particular locus on um, chromosome 15 and there's several genes that are very close to this variant and actually interestingly there are two variants in this particular part of the genome one of which would tend to give people up to six years earlier onset of the disease this is um, relatively uncommon and another variant which is much more common which appears to give a Um, protection against onset of the disease of uh, perhaps between one and one and a half years. But the fact that they occur very close together makes us more confident that this is a real effect that we're looking at here and that it's important in the disease. And of course, the big question is, how can we then use this knowledge, the fact that DNA repair kind of molecules are important, how can we use this to find ways to treat the disease? The way that we can use this is to focus our attention on this pathway rather than many of the other pathways that we've been um, looking at over the years. Because essentially, if you like, nature's done um, a natural clinical trial, as one of my colleagues always says, um, for us. It's um, let us know which of the pathways we need to intervene in in order to alter the age of onset of the disease. In other words, this gives us the potential to delay the disease. So we think that if we try to address DNA repair, we might be able to alter the age at which people get the disease and to push it backwards. Now, altering DNA repair, it's, it's a pretty fundamental process, and I think it's going to, it won't be straightforward, I don't think. But people are already looking at these processes because they're important in cancers. There are one or two drugs, potentially, that while they might not um, work immediately, they would provide a basis for um, further work to see if we could generate new compounds that might be suitable for manipulating this system in Huntington's disease. But essentially, we need to understand the biology better. And this gives us a chance to investigate that biology in much more detail, because we know exactly what we should be looking for. And that always gives you the chance to look at molecules that might alter those particular pathways because you know exactly what you're looking for. Huntington's disease is caused by these these triplets, these three letters of DNA being repeated and repeated. Are there other diseases that are similar that might also be affected in the same way by these same DNA repair processes? There are indeed. So there's, there's a series of diseases that are caused by expanded repeats. Most of them are triplets, but not all of them. So there are other diseases that could very well be affected by this same mechanism, yes, and we're actually um, investigating this at the moment. Leslie Jones from Cardiff University, she published that study in the journal Cell. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. Still to come on the programme, cats have vertical ones, sheep have horizontal ones, and humans have round pupils in their eyes. What's the reason? 
Plus, concrete buildings that are going to be scrubbing pollution out of the air in cities in the future. Find out how later on. But first, for billions of years, life on Earth was dominated by simple, single-celled microbes. Then, quite abruptly, about 565 million years ago, something dramatic happened. Groups of cells began working together as multicellular organisms. But how did this early complex life reproduce? Scientists at Cambridge University have discovered that one of these animals, a seafloor dweller known as Fractofusus, which looked a bit like a fern leaf, appears to have had a dual method of reproducing. It could send out runners like a strawberry or a spider plant to clone itself locally, or it could send out pieces of itself that float off and set up new colonies of the organism elsewhere downstream. Emily Mitchell. We looked at the oldest large complicated organisms in the fossil record and these are known as the Ediacaran organisms from about 565 million years ago. We don't actually know exactly what they were because they look totally different from everything else that's alive today or indeed outside their particular time period. We know they can't have been plants because they lived in the deep sea well away from any sunlight and they don't have any obvious features that would suggest that there are animals. There are no mouths for example so we think that instead they belong to um, their own uh, extinct group of organisms. What did they eat then if they had no mouth? We think that they absorbed nutrients from the water column directly through their membrane or their skin. And actually one of the features of these organisms is that they appear to have put a lot of effort into trying to maximise their surface area. You have lots of um, branching structures and off each branching structure you have another branch. So it's, it forms a fractal a little bit similar to how plants and trees maximise their surface area to try and catch a lot of sunlight. These ediacarans weren't plants, so they they were instead trying to get the nutrients from the water column. Were they standing up in the water, or were they lying flat on the bottom? Fractifusus was actually lying flat on the sea floor, and actually none of the species in the ecosystem moved around. Where the fossils are found was where they lived during life, and the entire ecosystem is preserved. Just tell me a bit about how you actually found the fossils and how you went about analysing them. So the fossils we studied are from Newfoundland, Canada, where you have hundreds of rock surfaces with fossils preserved, sometimes thousands of fossils over hundreds of square metres. What we wanted to know is because the fossil organisms we were looking at didn't move around, we were trying to work out what the position of them on the bedding plane could say about their basic biology and ecology. So what we used was something called differential GPS. This is different to the kind of GPS you use in your car, which is only accurate to a few metres. Differential GPS allows GPS to get really, really accurate down to a millimetre or so. So we use this to map out the spatial positions of thousands of fossils on three different rock surfaces. Ah, so you're looking at the individual and you're looking at the community distribution, the sort of spatial distribution on the sea, what would have been the seafloor for this big community. That's correct, yes. So we're looking at all, all the different species, where they lived and what the position of them relative to the other fossils of the other species and also within the species, what that can tell us. And how does that give you an insight into how they might reproduce? We, we compared its spatial distribution to what, what you might expect by random. And we knew that if, if we got a non-random distribution, then there's some interesting processes going on. So we found that actually Fractifusus was much, much closer together than you, you might expect by random. In other words, you've got an organism here 
surrounded by other organisms at too high a density to be explained by it's just a nice patch of seafloor to live on. So you're assuming that there must be some kind of reproductive phenomenon going on that's led to that density that you're observing in that particular area. Yes, it's also about the spatial positions of the fossils within the cluster. Are they therefore spawning a new one off the side of themselves in the same way that my strawberry plant in my strawberry patch will send out a runner and plant another plant next to itself? We actually found that uh, when we were looking at the reproduction of fractiosis, that it had, had a much more complicated uh, reproductive mode than we were expecting. While the vast majority of fractiosis specimens were actually clones of their parents, produced via stolons or runners of the type you see in strawberry or spider plants, it also had a waterborne propagule stage. So that is, there are little bits of it that were released by the parent organisms into the water. And we used the phrase propagule to describe them because while they could have been sexually produced seeds or spores, they also might have been very, very tiny fragments or buds. So what was going on is you had the grandparent specimens, if you will, were producing runners with little clones off the runners. The daughters of the, of the grandparents were then going on to produce more baby fractiosis themselves. And what was really quite nice part of the study is that when we broke down the, the sizes of the fractiosis to distinguish between the grandparents, the parents and the daughters, the distribution of the largest, the grandparent fractiosis, were actually very different. They were randomly distributed on the bedding plane and they also showed current directionality. So what this tells us is that they were actually formed not as clones, but instead via waterborne propagules. Emily Mitchell from Cambridge University describing the work she published this week in the journal Nature. Now, your eyes are said to be your window to the world, and it's your pupils that control how much light comes through those windows. But why do some animals, like cats, have their pupils stretched vertically, whereas others, like sheep, have horizontal pupils? James Farr spoke to Martin Banks from the University of California, Berkeley, who's been looking into how these different pupil shapes came about. There's a class of animals that tend to have vertical slit pupils and a class that tends to have horizontally elongated pupils. The former are very likely to be ambush predators, meaning that they hide and jump out at prey. And the latter, the ones with horizontal pupils, they're extremely likely to be prey animals that other animals predate upon. And our argument is that the the orientation of the pupil in both cases is advantageous for these particular animals. And why would that be the case? Why would, for example, the prey need these horizontal slits? They are on the ground, and they need to see panoramically along the ground to detect prey that might be approaching from some unknown direction. And what we showed is by having a horizontally elongated pupil, that maximizes the light input along the horizontal plane, So we think that's the right way to orient the pupil to help them see panoramically along the ground and detect predators. The other thing about these animals is their strategy for not being captured is also to run. And that's a really interesting problem because they run with their heads forward, but their eyes are on the side of their head. And so, in effect, they have to see out the side of their eye to run effectively. And by restricting the pupil vertically, making it short that helps decrease blur that would otherwise occur in the corner of the eye. So we think that's the right way to orient the pupil for these animals. So what about the vertical 
slits. Why would an ambush predator, why would they not want to see a wide area? Is there something else they need to focus on? They're not so worried about being predated upon. What they typically do is hide and wait to lurch at an unsuspecting prey animal. So their task is not to see panoramically so much as to gauge distance accurately. So this is a really clever adaptation to open the pupil up vertically while narrowing it horizontally in order to maximize their distance estimation capability. One potential problem is if an animal, say a sheep, still wants to make sure that it's not going to get attacked by a wolf from its side, but if it leans its head down to eat, is that not going to cause problems at all? Yeah, that's a great question. We, uh, we worried about that. We thought that um, might be fatal to our idea. So we went to a zoo and to a farm, and we recorded video of uh, goats, sheep, deer, and horses. And we found that the eye rotates in the head, so the pupil remains roughly parallel with the ground, even as they pitch their head down or um, hold their head upright. That movement is opposite in a direction in the two eyes. As the head pitches down, the left eye has to rotate clockwise relative to the head, and the right eye has to rotate counterclockwise relative to the head. And that's a movement humans can make, but we make tiny ones, and uh, these animals are making much bigger ones. It's a really pretty remarkable capability. Humans don't fit into either category of having vertical slits or horizontal slits. Why is that? Well, there are multiple demands on the eyes. They're important for pattern recognition. In humans, we read text and do fine uh, recognition of objects. Having a vertical slit pupil or a horizontal slit pupil creates an astigmatic-like effect that could hurt some pattern recognition capabilities. So we think humans just reached a different balance point in their goal to be good pattern recognizers. So now we know. That was Martin Banks, and his paper on that work came out this week in the journal Science Advances. From just a few months of age, human babies are able to produce sounds that are the building blocks for the language that we later develop. Scientists had believed that this was a uniquely human trait, but now Dr Zanna Clay from the University of Birmingham has found that our closest living relatives, the bonobos, also communicate with each other using peep sounds, the meanings of which are determined by other sounds. Amy Goodfellow took a peep at the paper. Although speech is unique to humans, the building blocks of speech were probably already present before we became human, and actually our close relatives, the bonobos, show an ability that is essential for speech to develop. Would this mean that maybe bonobos might go on to have more complex conversation or more complex speech like humans do? It's difficult to answer that. We know that there's probably a lot more complexity already existing in the way that these peeps are used. Um, For example, um, we've already found in another study that the peeps are combined with other calls and the, the combination of the calls in sequences actually creates new meaning for the peeps. And this is something that's really interesting when we're thinking about language and speech evolution because we have what's called syntax in in human speech which is 
complex combinations of different sounds to create new meanings, such as the speech sounds in words. And so I think we need to first look at how complex the PEEP system is before we can make any sort of assessments of what might happen in the future. But it does seem that the PEEP probably became more flexible and more complex in its use um, over time, and it probably started out more like a, a traditional fixed call. What does the bonobo's peep actually sound like? So bonobo peeps sound often like what you might think of as a very high-pitched bird or a squeaky door. They're really, really high-pitched, very short little calls. Um, In fact, in the jungle, sometimes I can't distinguish them very well from bird calls. Uh, So they, they really are very peepy. And actually, high-pitched calls require a bit more vocal control. So that's another thing that we think is interesting about peeps. It's harder to control high-pitched vocalisations compared to low. And from all of your experience in watching the bonobos, are you able to tell what they're saying uh, explicitly? Well, I mean, I have a much better sense of it, yes, uh, because they're not just producing peeps, they're producing many, many other different calls. And from my many years of working with bonobos in different situations, I've become a lot more connected to what they're doing and what they might be experiencing. So by hearing and understanding vocalisations, you can get a really good window into what's going on in their sort of you know, their social lives, actually. And so I, I find that by listening to calls as a sort of specialist now, I can often work out roughly what's going on in their in their experience. So what kind of things do they use these peeps to mean? Well, I mean, they peep, They, as I say, they peep in really every context that you can imagine a bonobo experiencing, but they particularly peep in really sort of socially important um uh, events so they they're very they they peep a lot during feeding and during food discovery they peep actually when they're grooming and when they're preparing their nests at night uh, they peep when they're just about to start traveling or sometimes when they're when they've stopped traveling uh, and they peep also following you know during play and aggression and even during sex so it seems that any sort of relevant event for them they like to peep about it Does this give us any information about speech in humans? For example, when we're babies and they make sounds that seem to be similar to peeps in my mind. Yes, I think it does provide us some interesting uh, connections actually with speech development in babies because even before babies can speak or even babble actually, the study was done on babies that are less than four months old. Babies are actually able to produce these signals across all different emotional situations and although people often think of babies as just crying and responding to emotions all of the time, when the researchers actually looked at what babies are doing, they realised that the babies, even at this young age, can actually produce these very flexible calls that don't tie so strongly to emotion and probably form the really important foundations and building blocks of their future speech and the ability for these babies to produce sounds that are freed up from their emotional content. Zanna Clay speaking with Amy Goodfellow about her paper in the journal Peer J. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. Now, here's a riddle for you. What do you call a substance that is 300 times stronger than steel, so thin you can see through it? If you covered an entire football field with a sheet of it, it would weigh less than a gram, and you can make it with nothing more complicated than a pencil and some sticky tape. Well, it sounds like the answer should be a miracle, but 
Believe it or not, such a substance does exist, and it's called graphene. Five years ago, it won the Nobel Prize for Manchester University scientists Andre Geim and Konstantin Novoselov. Graphene consists of rings of carbon atoms linked together into sheets that resemble molecular chicken wire. In a pencil lead, millions of these sheets are stacked up on top of one another to form graphite. And this week we're going to take a look at graphene and what it can do, including making better lasers, touchscreen devices and concrete that can clean up pollution. We're starting, though, with James Baker. He's the business director at the University of Manchester's National Graphene Institute. Hello, James. Hello. I've painted a picture of graphene so far as resembling chicken wire in some respects, but if we were to go in with a really, really powerful microscope, what would we see? What does it look like? Graphene is a single atomic layer of carbon, two-dimensional material. So occasionally people talk about 2D material, and actually graphene now is is one of a number of other two-dimensional materials that have now been looked at by the scientists. So it is, if you like, a, a, a hexagonal structure. The chicken wire is a very good description, and at that level of a single layer, I often think, if you like, of graphite as a, a pack of cards. And if you could just peel one of those cards off, that's effectively what you're doing when you produce a single layer of graphene. And when one stretches or applies a force to graphene, we said it's about 300 times stronger than some forms of steel. Is that because you're literally pulling along the sheet? So you're trying to pull carbon atoms apart. And so you're spreading effectively the force of trying to pull on it across the entire sheet amongst all the atoms. And that's why it's so powerful. So 2004, when the first isolation happened, the so-called superlatives, now all these fantastic properties that have now been uh, discovered since that first isolation, like stronger than steel, more conductive than copper, transparent, flexible, stretchable, effectively you're stretching that carbon chain and it's got these properties that give it such a wonderful range of possibility for future applications. If one looks at chicken wire, the striking thing is that it's mostly all holes. So if one looks at graphene, that presumably is also mostly all holes. Is that why light goes through it so easily and so well? It's not fully transparent. It's about 97% transparent as a single layer. Graphite, as you probably know, it's dark, it's black, it's not transparent at all. But one of the properties you can now have is you can now start using those layers in different ways. So, for example, you can make it uh, transparent, you can make it strong, you can make it flexible. You can also make it permeable or impermeable to, to gases and water, which is another reason why there's a whole range of properties being looked at for, for graphene. Why is it then impermeable to gases? Because you've got these fairly big holes. If I return to my chicken wire analogy, I've got lots of space. Why wouldn't, say, water molecules or small gas molecules or gas atoms fall through the holes? So the scientists now are doing a whole range of experiments having isolated the graphene where you can now effectively, I'll call it, tune the different layers of graphene. So you can, um, through experimentation, it's been shown that you can effectively tune the layers to only allow certain size of molecules to pass through or to be repelled, if you like, by the graphene uh, barrier. So ultimately, for example, water desalinization is an area of huge interest and research, both for research applications, but also for commercial applications. Imagine having a, a membrane made out of graphene that could separate, for example, dirty, salty water, and you could produce pure drinking water through that membrane. What a fantastic uh, commercial application uh, if you could actually achieve that. 
Could you do the same thing with gases? Could we clean up waste gas or scrub out, say, carbon dioxide from a power station flue? Can you filter gases in this way, in a molecular way with graphene? I've mentioned this tuning property. So again, there are different applications for gases, for liquids. Um, A simple experiment we've done in the University of Manchester is one where we've separated um, water from fuel, just to give you an example of a liquid. But also, as you say, we're looking at separating gases. So cleaning up the air might be a possibility for graphene in the future. Is it easy to do that, James? Does it take a, a lot of tweaking to get the graphene to do that? And therefore, is it scalable? Could we make an industrial filter based on graphene? A lot of the experiments today are still being done in the laboratory, but increasingly now we're starting to see applications being developed using graphene as an additive, probably in the first instance. Um, But yes, it is still quite a challenge to scale up and to get the purity and the volume of the graphene for these commercial applications today. But graphene is still relatively young. 2004 for a new material is, is still relatively young. So we're at, starting to see quite rapid advances, but not yet to an industrial scale for some of these exciting applications. But we're getting there. Graphite is a very good conductor of electricity, isn't it? So presumably, therefore, graphene, which makes up the graphite, is too. Uh, why is that? And why might that be useful? So again, these fantastic properties of of mixing different layers, different forms of of graphene. Again, graphene uh, is a very broad term and there are many different ways of producing graphene from from different processes, um, either from graphite or or from chemical mixing of materials. Um, But by certain ways of producing that, you can also try and enhance the electrical conductivity. So again, some fantastic opportunities either as a coating or as an additive into a polymer or into a composite, we can exploit some of those thermal management properties. So transfer of heat away from a light bulb, for example, is a good example. Uh, Again, a partner we're working with in Manchester has used a graphene layer within an LED light bulb to dissipate the heat more effectively than a conventional metal uh, filament. So again, you're starting to see graphene appear in products for the future. If it's made of carbon and therefore likes oily things, does this mean that you could potentially also add it to things like oils and, and have a better lubricant for your engine that will also take heat away from the components it's trying to lubricate? Sure, yeah, today. Um, people are looking at the graphene properties for lubricants. Today, you, um, there are companies who are actually adding graphene to uh, lubricants for drilling to take the heat away from the drill head. But again, companies are potentially looking at exploiting those properties in a whole range of different applications, which again is why it is so exciting from all these different markets and applications for the future. James, I understand a lot more now about why people are so excited about graphene. Thank you very much. That was James Baker. He's from Manchester's National Graphene Institute. So as we've heard, graphene certainly seems to have some pretty impressive properties. But to harness these features, we need to make it on probably a grander scale than some sticky tape and pencils. So to find out how we can do that, Amy Goodfellow went to see Katerina Paltner at Cambridge Nanosystems, one company that produces graphene in industrial quantities by breaking apart methane molecules and using the carbon that's released. Hi, I'm here for an interview with Katerina Paltner. Oh, OK, yeah, come on through. Thank you. Graphene is really hard to make on a large scale because this is a single atom layer of carbon. And generally, single atom layers are not very stable and they don't like to exist. 
we start out with something that's called a hydrocarbon, so a gas like methane, the classic greenhouse gas. And we want an all-carbon product, so we have to crack it. And um, the way we do it is we employ a microwave. A microwave like I would have at home? The same as you would have at home, just a little bit higher powers. Um, you have a power generator, a waveguide, and you hit the gas with that wave. So basically the high energy of this microwave caused these atoms to break apart, and that's how you get your carbon. Yes, exactly, and that's how it is. That's actually the beauty of our process. Um, the only two things we need is electricity and methane. You just think of it as uh, different steps along one way. You have the gas flowing. At one point, it breaks. In the next, it forms graphene. In the third, it gets filtered and then compacted and processed. Should we go and have a look at what's going on? Oh, we get to wear some nice lab coats. So um, what we have in here is five of our small-scale reactors. These are a lot smaller than I thought. They look like small greenhouses. And in each one, there's this sort of about metre long by half a metre in diameter cylinder. Uh, these reactors allow us to produce approximately sort of one to two kilograms of product per day. What's actually going on in here? So what we see here is the microwave I was describing earlier in a slightly more industrial layout. Than yeah, this doesn't look anything like the <laughs> microwave I have at home. It's literally just a, a silver box. That's all. No, no window to see your food going round. <laughs> no, exactly, yeah. The wave is generated in here and transported through this waveguide. You can see here where the gas is injected. Here is the microwave that cracks it. Then here we have the part that is um, the, the reactor part where graphene is formed. So, so the cylinder I was describing is just the bit where the graphene actually forms after this cracking has happened. The internal structure is what drives formation of graphene. So it's all going left to right, basically, as yes. we're looking at it. Uh, so the graphene is formed and transported in the gas stream and then sort of filtered out um, and drops into this hopper and then hydrogen is emitted through this pipe and then goes into an incinerator. So this is a tiny little sample of uh, graphene in a glass pot. You can see it's a very, very low-density fly powder. Yeah, because as you shake it around, it sort of yeah. almost floats in a way. It's like one of those um, toys you have at Christmas where you shake it and it has snowflakes inside. Yeah. It, is, um, it, it has very low density, obviously, as you would expect from a single sheet of graphene. Yeah, I suppose it doesn't weigh very much, does it? It doesn't. So the amount that you see here it would be approximately two grams, maybe one and a half. Oh, wow. And that's quite a big pot. It's so 200 milliliters weighs about two grams. Yeah. How much would this 200 milliliters be worth? This uh, is sort of our top of the range product. And we sell it uh, mainly for... Um, research purposes um, and for very high-end products. So we sell it at approximately £10 per gram. What about the less fancy graphene? We sell different grades of graphene tailored towards the application where large-scale applications are required. Our, our carbon, we sell it for approximately 45p per gram. 
What's the difference between these two? The different qualities of our material uh, vary in terms of layers on top of each other. So while our top range product is sort of 70% single layer, the um, the grades as they go down will have more layers, so between 10 and 15 in, in our uh, sort of lowest grade. So if we were looking at some powder of your lowest grade, would it be a bit less floaty compared to this fancy one? It would be slightly denser, yes. That was Amy Goodfellow speaking to Katerina Paukner from Cambridge Nanosystems. This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. Coming up, what will graphene do for us in the future? First, though, let's try and find out what it's doing right now. Andrea Ferrari leads the Cambridge Graphene Centre, which has been set up to investigate the science and the technological applications of graphene. Now, Andrea, you're working on a range of projects that are already delivering some very promising results. So let's begin with some concrete findings. You can see what I did there. Tell us about your concrete cleanup operation. How does this work? Cambridge Graphene Centre works with a variety of companies, almost uh, 40 at the moment, and one of these uh, companies is called Italcementi, is one of the biggest uh, concrete producers in the world. And within the so-called uh, Graphene flagship project, which is a 1 billion euros project that will try to bring graphene to the factory floor within the next 10 years, we are trying to help them together with the University of Bologna to develop a new kind of concrete that will be self-cleaning, but especially will reduce pollution. And to do so, uh, graphene is added to the surface of concrete, concrete that also has other nanoparticles inside and helps crack uh, uh, gases that can be potentially toxic, such as NOxes. We can already get surfaces to clean themselves up, though, can't we? Famous structures such as King's Cross Station in London has self-cleaning glass, where light hits the glass, it drives a chemical reaction that burns off the dirt, effectively. Are you sort of doing the same thing here, then? Uh, yes, indeed. In terms of self-cleaning concrete, this company has already a brand out that you can purchase. What happens is that if you put graphene in it, you can potentially double the efficiency of the process. Good so grief. graphene that's is... A, that's a massive difference. Yeah, a huge difference, and graphene is enhancing the properties of the uh, nanoparticles that are already present there. Right, so on the surface of the concrete are some nanoparticles. In glass, they use titanium dioxide. Is that the same in Indeed, it's titanium dioxide, and what the key finding is, if you put together titanium dioxide and graphene, you enhance the process by a factor of two or even more. Do we know how that works? That is the sticky point. We don't know exactly how it works, and that's where we are trying to help. We are trying to conduct some basic physics investigation in order to figure out exactly the process that is underneath this uh, fantastic property. Would you have to pour concrete which has got graphene right the way through so that's going to be an enormous amount of graphene when you think how much concrete gets made every year or is this like a veneer you smear this on the surface of a, of a concrete and you then get the cleaning just on the surface it is a, indeed a surface effect so we are speaking about a, a relatively thick layer at the surface of the concrete so not the entire concrete will be full of this material but even this will require a significant production of graphene and will it work indefinitely at the moment, there are no long-term studies, but we do know that, that graphene is really resilient, so there's no reason why this should stop after many years. 
Goodness. And what sorts of applications might there be, just, just buildings in cities? Or could it be used in other places as well? Another interesting application is in tunnels where you have to have cars going to. As you know, at the moment, you have uh, some ventilation systems. But having a concrete that is able to reduce pollution will be much safer. And in the case of a fault of the ventilation system, a concrete will still be able to reduce the pollution in the, in the gallery. So that's a very interesting application as well. Is it not dark in a tunnel, though? It is dark, but you can still, the light that you use is not uh, a visible light, so it can still work uh, under these conditions. Could you retrofit this to existing buildings? I'm thinking that there are lots and lots of buildings built in concrete in big cities all around the world. They're all getting dirty. There's lots of pollution around. Could we veneer buildings with this after they've been built, or does it need to be part of the fabrication? Um, I think in principle you can do that, but of course I'm not a builder, so you probably have to ask one of them. (laughs) What about other aspects of graphene interacting with light? Because one of the other claims that's being made is that it's extremely good, potentially, in the world of lasers. Why is that? Yes, indeed. We heard before from James that uh, graphene is very transparent, but actually is a, also the most absorbing material for the thickness that it has, because the thickness of graphene is a one billionth of a meter. So when we speak about 2% of a one billionth of a meter, is a huge number. So graphene can help create extremely fast lasers. Define an extremely fast laser. What does that mean? We are speaking of the order of one millionth of a billionth of a second of a pulse, which is really a record property. But why is that useful? Why do I want a laser that just sends me the briefest of all brief flashes? Uh, for example, to uh, to send data to. In the future, we want to exchange information, uh, streaming high-definition high movies in a few seconds, and that's uh, optical telecommunications are one of the options. So certainly you want to have extremely fast pulses. Another application is for surgery, because in this way you can ablate material, for example, if you think about laser surgery, without cooking the surface of the skin. And useful. so that, that would be quite useful as well. <laughs> How does the graphene do that then? How would one incorporate graphene into a laser to achieve that effect? Graphene works like a sponge for water. So if you think about water flowing and you put a sponge under the water, the sponge will fill with water and momentarily the water will not flow underneath the sponge. Then you, if you squeeze the sponge, the water will keep going until it, it gets uh, uh, filled up again. So graphene does exactly the same with light. Momentarily, it can absorb all the light are having onto it. Any colour, any wavelength. Any wavelength is the only material that will work at absolutely every wavelength of light. And that's why it looks so black when you put lots of it together to make graphene, is it? Indeed, because it's 2% per layer. So if you have 20 or 40 layers, then it's completely black. But if you do so, you don't have a laser. So you In, still indeed. have to use a visible. And how do you give it the metaphorical squeeze of the sponge then to get the light out? How do you do that? The good thing is that graphene does it by itself. So it's one property that is intrinsic to the graphene. You don't need to squeeze it. The uh, excited states in graphene go to the ground state, and that's the squeezing extremely fast of the order of uh, millions of seconds, uh, millions of billions of seconds by themselves. So you don't need to squeeze it. It does it for you. Therefore, the application would be you make some kind of graphene filter that you put in front of or, or within your laser and you then fire the laser light into it and it then does or takes care of the, the creation of the pulses. 
Yeah, if you think, for example, of a simple laser pointer, if you put graphene on the front of it, then you will get laser pulses out of it. What about the electrical properties of graphene? Because one of the other things that people are very excited about is it is, as James was saying, very conductive and therefore might be able to make a big difference to data transmission and the way computers work. I, I know my computer and my mobile phone gets very, very hot when I'm doing even the most mundane thing with it. Yes, uh, this is linked to what we said before. Graphene has an exceptional interaction with light. And so in order to transmit data, you need a laser that we already discussed. You need then what is called a modulator in order to, you know, uh, give uh, like we are doing now. We go on air, so we need to put the message in. And then we need the detector, which is like an antenna at the receiving end. Graphene can do the three parts that we discussed, but at the consumption of energy that is, 10 or even 100 times smaller what silicon is doing at the moment. So that should save the cell phone battery for a little bit longer, shouldn't it? Yes, indeed, and you should also not cook your uh, pants when you have the cell phone in. Thank you very much. Andrea Ferrari from the University of Cambridge. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme with any thoughts or feedback, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also pick up full transcripts of these programmes from our website, nakedscientist.com. Graphene has only been a major player in the world of materials for about 10 years, which is a pretty short time in terms of getting a new substance from the lab out into commercial applications. We've just heard what's out there now and what researchers are currently working on, but what does the future hold? Carl Coleman is Professor of Chemistry at the University of Durham and he's Chief Scientific Director at Applied Graphene Materials, a company that manufactures graphene and advises customers on how to incorporate it into their products. So we've heard about all these incredible things using graphene in concrete in buildings in tunnels in lasers in surgery and is does it feel like there's anything that uh, graphene can't do or can graphene do all sorts of things tell us about some of the applications that you're really excited about yes um, so we heard some great uh, some great application potential applications from both james and uh, andrea um in the in the future i, I guess what we're looking at to look at a commercial perspective we're really after what we call uh, early wins. Some people like to call them uh, low-hanging fruits, but I prefer the early wins, a more positive uh, <laughs> approach. So is this just sticking graphene into current products to, to make so them better? It's slightly more sophisticated, but yes. Uh, so what we, what we would call sort of drop-in technology, where you'd actually take a current process or uh, a product where you just really improve those properties, enhance the properties of that material. So we're talking there really of things like paints or coatings, uh, oils and lubricants that we, we had mentioned earlier, composite uh, materials, and even in energy storage, so supercapacitors or, or batteries. So really actually using graphene in a more drop-in technology sense, but making use of more than one of those properties uh, that graphene has. So we heard a lot about the exceptional properties that graphene has, but really what we want to do in a commercial sense is make use of perhaps more than one of them, and then you can get that cost-performance uh, benefit. I mean, I love the idea of using graphene. Maybe, you know, I can have my graphene tracksuit and my hoverboard. Are there going to be more fun applications of graphene that, that people are starting to explore? Yes, there are. I mean, uh, just last week there was uh, an article in uh, Nature. So that was uh, graphene kirigami. So uh, kirigami is just a form of uh, origami, uh, but with cutting. And so they're able to fabricate uh, springs, hinges, and all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And if you put a, uh, an iron pad on the graphene spring, you can actually move it uh, in a magnetic field. So you can sort of stretch it in a magnetic field. 
So you could see how these could be used in stretchable electrodes or wearable electronics, wearable devices. So uh, there are some lots of fun things uh, around the corner. And are there any things that you think that graphene actually won't be the right thing for? We do hear so much about it. It seems there's an incredible amount of hype around this this material as well. Is there anything that it, it probably won't turn out to be good for? Oh, that's a, that's a tricky question. Uh, we like to focus on the positive, so things that it will be good for. Um, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, there, there are lots of potential applications for graphene uh, out there, but there's also lots of competition. So some of the technology that we're talking about, mainly in electronics, there's, there's competitor materials. Um, so it's, it's going to be tougher for graphene to really make the step change, perhaps, in some of those applications. So we are really hung up on silicon. We, we, we like silicon. The, the advancement in silicon is, is phenomenal. So will you really see it in chips? Maybe on its own, no, I don't think so. But perhaps as a hybrid, so you could see it incorporated with silicon to deliver something that you can't do with silicon. So there is a combination. So replacing silicon, say no, um, but using conjunction with silicon, then yes. Another area that people are very interested in this sort of the the nanomaterials is in potentially in medicine, in drug delivery. Um, We heard about the possible use in in surgical lasers. But what do we know about its safety in the human body if people do start making, you know, nano devices out of graphene that could go inside us? Yes. So if you're talking implants, and of course the toxicology or toxicity of graphene does come into play, or potential toxicity. So uh, there are lots of efforts out there in, in the scientific arena where people are looking at the potential um, toxic or to see if graphene actually has any toxic effect um, so that that's still an area that's very open and an area that people are researching very intensively uh, there's there's no evidence at the moment to perhaps suggest that it's going to be any different to other carbons uh, that are perhaps out there that people are using so it, it's really watch this space I guess for what what people come up with in uh, in that that area so I'm not going to ask you to throw your crystal ball too far into the future, you know, the, the graphene spaceship heading to Pluto. But maybe in the next five years, what do you see as being the, the key applications that will really start to come to fruition? So the applications we're likely to see. So we've seen the early adopters, so sporting goods. So graphene's already out there in tennis rackets, um, bicycle wheels and bicycle components. Um, so it's nearly the next phase. And so I think we're likely to see it in coatings. Uh, oils and lubricants, uh, composites perhaps a little way down uh, down the track. But the big one to watch out for perhaps is supercapacitors. I mean, that, that has uh, uh, an enormous amount of potential. Uh, what's a supercapacitor? <laughs> I'm a biologist. <laughs> so uh, it's another way of storing energy. So it's a bit like a battery, um, but you store it through ions rather than electrochemical work. Um, so you separate the ions in a device, but you can charge them in seconds. So a battery takes... Uh, hours to uh, to charge up, or a capacity you can charge up in seconds. Um, but that, that, that's a simple uh, differentiate between the, the two. But. I mean, over the past half an hour, we've heard of some really incredible and exciting applications. But what are what do you think are the hurdles that need to be overcome? And we've heard a bit about how we can make it on a on a more industrial scale. What are the the really big challenges to get graphene into the prime time? Yeah, so we're we're, we're making headway in the graphene synthesis. That that's going well. There's still more things uh, to solve in terms of the synthesis and isolation purity of the uh, of the material. Um, but but really. Uh, 
if, if you're looking at some of these applications in that you have to get it into something, so graphene dispersing in a variety of matrices is going to be very, very important. And that can be tricky. So it's very important to work with uh, people, uh, companies or technologies that really know that their products or process and then help and work with them to get graphene to disperse into their products or media and then really to deliver the benefits of graphene that we're all talking about. It's certainly a very exciting future to look forward to. Thank you very much. That's Carl Coleman. Thanks to our other guests in the studio this week. That is James Baker and Andrea Ferrari. And finally this week, Connie Orbach talks relatives and relations for our question of the week. How many people are needed to avoid inbreeding in a population? Well, Louise, that question all sounds a little Adam and Eve. And it's also something the naked scientists have been wondering. You see, we recently bought a desert island in the Pacific and we want to avoid any sticky situations in the future. So how many people do we need to start with to keep our island healthy? When I asked you on Facebook and Twitter, Len Fisher thought that only one was a safe bet, whilst J. Michael Antovitz II thought that it might depend on what definition we use. Maybe Professor Mike Wheel, a statistical geneticist from King's College London, can help us. So inbreeding means different things to different people. So there's no one single answer to this question. Everyone is related to their partner somehow. It's just a question of how far one needs to go back in time before a common ancestor is found. Oh, wow. So wait a minute. Does that mean I'm technically related to my boyfriend? (laughs) Technically, yes. I mean, to stop all relatedness between all mating partners, you would need, in fact, an infinite number of people. OK, I see. But our island isn't going to be infinitely big. And more importantly, I'm not sure I can stomach the idea of being related to my boyfriend. And that must also mean that absolutely everybody is inbred, which just doesn't feel quite right. Surely there's another way. Well, yes, there is. To a population geneticist, the definition of inbreeding is simply a situation where mating partners are more closely related than what's expected by chance. So, using this definition, all one needs to do to avoid inbreeding is to select mating partners purely by chance, as though you were in a lottery. And then the population can be as small as you want. Well, it needs to have at least two. But in a small population, even one that was enjoying some hedonistic version of the national lottery, mating partners will unavoidably tend to be more closely related to each other. And I suppose that can't be good for the future? Yep. In the short term, this increases the chances of people suffering from certain types of genetic diseases. Diseases such as cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease, for example. This is because these diseases are caused by inheriting a bad genetic variant both from one's mother and from one's father, and the chances of them both having the same bad genetic variant are increased if they are closely related to each other. OK, so where does that leave us then? Ultimately, there's no magic population threshold that will make this problem go away. But a study in 2002 suggested that a population of 160 on board a so-called generation spaceship travelling to the stars should be able to keep itself genetically healthy. So this would be a reasonable guideline for your desert island. In fact, real human populations on islands in the Pacific have survived population crashes down to as few as 20 people. But I wouldn't recommend this as a way to keep your desert island either healthy or happy. Well, there we have it. It all depends on your definition. I think to be on the safe side, I'm going with at least a few hundred. Who wants to come? Next week, we'll be getting the maps out to try and answer this question sent in by Brian Lucas. Where are we within the universe? 
Big questions indeed. If you happen to have a galactic map and you think you know where we are, or if you'd like to come to our desert island and start a hedonistic lottery, or if you have any other question you want answered, get in touch. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientist.com slash forum. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Amy Goodfellow, who put the programme together. And do join us next time when we're going to be poking our noses into some really disgusting stuff. What even is disgust? Join us next week to find out if you dare. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. This is RN. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.